Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. This is the word of our God. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And then dropping down to verse 39. So when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city, Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover. And then I want to drop down to the last verse of this chapter, verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for... uh, even these seemingly little details about our Savior's childhood. And we ask that we would understand the purpose of you giving them to us, and that in understanding that, we would know our Savior better, love him more deeply, and honor him in all that we say and do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, I I quoted the children's catechism a couple of times, and a few people came up and talked to me about that afterwards. As it happens, this morning, uh, Mia and I were reading uh, a little children's catechism devotional book together at breakfast, as we do on on Sunday mornings, and the children's catechism question listed there fit with today's sermon. So I thought I would share another children's catechism question with you. That catechism number 13 asks, how can God justify you? And the answer is by forgiving all my sins and declaring me to be righteous. That twofold thing, not just forgiving my sins, but also declaring me to be perfectly righteous in his sight. And the question is, how... I'm not sure I think they asked the right question to fit with that wonderful answer in that children's catechism. How can God justify you? And they tell you what justification means. God forgives your sins, and then he declares you righteous, but the answer doesn't actually tell you how. How is it that we stand righteous before God? And there are, of course, two answers we could try to give to that. We might say, I I stand righteous before God because I am righteous. 
he looks at me and he sees how good I am, how perfectly I've kept his law. There's a problem with that. Scripture declares that all have sinned and all fallen short of the glory that God requires, the righteous standard which he has given. All have sinned. We fall short. Uh, One way to think about our sin is to think about our sinful nature that we're born with. And we can reflect back all the way to the garden to think about that. Uh, God, being infinitely above the creature, doesn't owe us any relationship at all, any friendship, any engagement with us, having created. He could, if he wasn't good and holy and righteous and Loving, He could have stepped back fairly enough and just watched us destroy ourselves from a great distance. But that's not what God has done in history. In the garden, we find him uh, stooping down to have a relationship with mankind, humankind. And he does this by, by making a, a covenant, a word that's not found in Genesis but uh, Genesis 1 through 3, but, but which is, is the standard of what he's doing with Adam in the garden. Adam and Eve, he makes a covenant with them, an agreement of relationship that has a, a condition, a single condition. You keep my law and you have lasting life in relationship with me. You don't keep my law, you have death. And he presents them with a single command, a single command by which if they kept that single command, they would be considered righteous and sinless before him, having never sinned. That one command, do not eat from that one tree. And the implication of what else he says in the context is, but eat of all these other wonderful trees I've given you, just not the one. And Adam, having never in his life sinned before, Eve, having never in her life sinned before, they never having seen sin influence them, so not having nurture from sinful parents, nor having a sinful nature by creation, nonetheless, sinned. And Romans 5 indicates that we, in Adam as our representative, we also receive this this sinful nature. We're born in trespasses and sins. uh, It amazes me that we who love representative government hate representative theology. But that's the case, isn't it? We we don't want to say, I was born a sinner. Why? Because some guy way back then sinned. And therefore, all humanity are born sinners. But that's what the Bible presents us with. And it's rather ironic when we, we have representative government as a way to uh, live in this land. Uh, but recall that uh, Adam was sinless. You could not have asked for a better representative from all ordinary humans. There could never have been better representatives than our first parents, Adam and Eve. No sinful influences, no sinful nature. 
and yet they fell into sin. Now, if we don't like that, then I could also add this challenge. Uh, Each day this week, read the Ten Commandments when you wake up and read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 before you go to bed and try to keep God's law for yourself and be righteous for one week. Leave Adam and Eve out of it. We are still unable to make it according to God's standard on our own by ourselves, even for a day. Tell me, tell me if you've succeeded next week and, and we can talk. That, that's one way that we could be counted righteous before God. Thank God that that covenant God made with Adam and Eve in the garden was not the only covenant he's ever made in history. He, in that garden, in the very piece of real estate where we sinned against him, promised another, another, the seed of the woman, a new representative instead of Adam, a new representative in the covenant of grace. Jesus Christ, in the covenant of grace, uh, provides this new representative, 1 Corinthians 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49, speaks of Jesus being the second Adam. The second Adam. It's saying he's the beginning of something new. The first, as other parts of scripture refer, the first among many brethren. In Christ, there will be a new humanity with sons and daughters for God the Father by adoption in Christ. But part of that second Adam emphasis in 1 Corinthians 15 is that he represents us before God. So that where Adam represented, Romans 5, Adam represented, and all who were represented by Adam, that is all humanity, fell with him into sin, death, and decay. All those who are in Christ as their representative have life and salvation and look forward to a new creation where the very decayed creation around us that's groaning right now is itself renewed in the new heavens and the new earth with eternal life and good things in the presence of God for all eternity. That the scripture doesn't present us with salvation apart from representation. No salvation apart from representation. In the Old Testament, it pointed to Christ with the sacrifices, goats and rams and bulls, bloodshed. Even in our text reflecting on the Old Testament, in certain cases, pigeons and turtle doves as the representative before God all pointing to Christ, who would be the representative who gave himself a sacrifice to satisfy God's justice by paying for sin, but also who perfectly kept the law in all ways. What does all of this have to do with Luke chapter 2? And these little verses we've read. Well, remember, the gospel of Luke is the gospel of certainty. Luke doesn't want you to have any doubts left in your mind about the good news of the gospel. And so one of the things Luke wants us to see is that Christ is our perfect righteousness. 
He kept God's law in every conceivable way, never breaking it at all. If Adam in the garden was put under a probationary test for a period of time, here's this tree, don't touch it, and he failed. What's Christ's probationary period? Is it after his baptism for 40 days in the wilderness? Is it in the garden right before his crucifixion? Luke is making sure we understand that the probationary testing of Christ was his whole life. Just like, just like you are under the law your whole life. So your representative was under the law his whole life. And Luke wants you to be certain that he kept the law his whole life. And so we get these little thoughts along the way. Let's, let's look at a few of them. Luke presents us as Christ, uh, even in the first verses of chapter 2, presents us as Christ having kept God's law perfectly uh, from his birth, but not just from his birth, from his conception. Uh, We're reminded in our text that uh, Jesus is named Jesus, which has to do with salvation, because the angel said so. That, that draws us back to chapter 1. And it reminds us that Christ was not born in a sinful way. The Pharisees will later accuse Christ in a side, side manner. They say, well, we know who our father is. Um, unlike you. And lest we look at Christ, our representative, and say, oh, was he born in sin in the sense of born illegitimately? Joseph and Mary weren't married yet, and they decided to sleep together anyway, and so some, somehow that's going to taint Christ. If we have that kind of thought, Luke wants us certain, through the direct message from God through Gabriel, that This is a virgin birth. No sin was attached to his birth. Matthew goes out of the way for that as well, showing us Joseph's side of the story. Joseph didn't know who the father was either, so God told him that it wasn't another human. And so before conception, in conception, Christ is pure and holy. He's not conceived in a sinful manner. But chapter 2, 1 through 7 then show us that even in the womb, he was keeping the law in one sense. Because the law of the land was, according to the Roman law, if, if you lived here, you needed to go home and be registered. And Jesus cannot be said later in life to have not been registered in the city of David. Why? Because his parents, while he was in the womb, brought him to Bethlehem, and there with them he's registered, according to Roman law. He kept the the secular law, even in the womb. But then, as we come into our text, then it's not just in the womb, it's also in his from his infancy, from his very birth. God puts him with these godly parents, a godly adoptive father, and a godly mother. And verse 21 shows us that they kept the law. The law of God for Israel said on the eighth day, 
You circumcise the male child. And this, this outward sign of circumcision, it was an Old Testament sacrament that represented with a, a tangible thing, a spiritual reality. So the sacrament represented two things. One, it represented that this is set apart for God. Abraham, everything you own, everything about your life, and even your children no longer belong to you, Abraham. They belong to me. And that's good news for God to say, everything you have is mine in a special way. And so Christ bears this outward sign, even though he is the eternal God and was eternally with the Father, creator of the world. When he becomes man, he bears that outward sign declaring that his life is set apart for God. And then the the visible part of that sacrament of circumcision declared being a part, inclusion in, in the visible people of God. And even though he is the king of his people, the God of all creation, he is not... He's not part of that one nation. He's the God of all nations. Nonetheless, to fulfill the law, he bears that outward sign. Through this work of his believing parents, even then, Christ keeps the ceremonial law. And that then continues in verses 22 through 24. We're shown two other aspects of God's law, which Christ keeps as an infant through the actions of his parents. We see him dedicated in verses 22 through 24. Now, dedication is not here what we think about in American evangelicalism with uh, this this infant dedication ceremony that many practice. Uh, Because that is... Well, that's certainly not found in what Christ is doing here. This is a keeping of Exodus 13, where God declared that the firstborn son would be dedicated to God as a ransom in the place of all your other children. Now, you can read about this in connection with the Passover. You can read about it in connection with the tribe of Levi. You can read about it in connection with the children. It wasn't done to every child in a household. It was done only to the firstborn son who represented all your children and was set apart in a unique way for God. Now, in the Old Testament law, God didn't always require you to give up your firstborn son from your household. It was a ceremony representing his ransom, uh, and there were sacrifices involved, and then except in extraordinary cases, you got to take your son home with you, raise him just like all your other children, and he would inherit uh, with them, sometimes more than them. But, uh, but it was this symbolic thing. That we don't have an equivalent to that for us today uh, because we don't need one. Because Christ was dedicated at the right time. According to the law, the firstborn, the only begotten son is the ransom 
for all of the Father's children by adoption. See, Christ here fulfills, and he fulfills it in a way that declares, you, my brothers and sisters, my life for yours. Even even when he was less than a year old, Christ keeps this part of the law through his dedication. 22 through 24 also show us another part of law keeping. And this is law keeping through his mother. But you know how we are. Uh, So often we impute the sins of fathers and mothers to the children. And so lest Christ be accused of impurity and not keeping God's law as an adult or by us today, we are also shown that as an infant, his mother kept the ceremonial law that was tied to his birth. And so we have before us her bringing these uh, the two turtle doves or two young pigeons according to the law of the Lord for sacrifice. This, this directs us to Leviticus 12. Leviticus, everyone's favorite book. All these strange things. Uh, I, you know, I almost was going to preach on Leviticus starting back in November when we finished Titus, uh, and I chose Luke instead. But that, that doesn't mean you're not going to have to sit through Leviticus at some point. Uh, I'm still excited about that. We just have Luke to do first, so that buys you a year and a half or so. Um, but, uh, but Leviticus, one of the things we need to understand to understand Leviticus is that there are, there are two things about humanity which separate us from God. There's the guilt of our sin, and there's the decay and the brokenness of our creatureliness. The two things sometimes we don't separate when we read Leviticus, and then we read these laws about needing to be purified, and we think, wow, God had a horrible view of women. That's not even fair. You you just gave birth to a kid, and now, well, the father doesn't have to present a sacrifice, and the mother's somehow the sinner. Right? Because we don't separate two things out from one another. That because of Adam's sin, not only did sin come into the world, but also death and decay through sin. So that you are dying. And that's a, that's a type of impurity. The speed which with you die is not necessarily tied to your sin. Sometimes we're like the disciples who sinned so that that man has blindness. We we connect the decay, the brokenness of creation and our bodies with someone did something. Well, Scripture tells us Adam did something. (laughs) That's who did something. And now you're dying. You sin as well. Leviticus has plenty about your sin, but also has plenty about your brokenness. 
And so I think that's important to note. Leviticus 12 talks about this, this mother. She's given birth. Now she's impure for X amount of time. And then she has to bring offerings. And one of them is a sin offering. But that's not saying that she sinned in having a baby. Or that her, the way her body works which has impurity tied to it before a holy God, a perfectly holy God, because of the brokenness of this world, the, the two things aren't to necessarily be confused. So here at Mary, it's not that she sinned in having Christ. It's that thanks to the sin that took place in the garden, there's a curse on childbirth. But, but especially you women know that some of that curse isn't just when you have a baby. That there, there's biological stuff tied to this, this whole process of childbirth or even not having a baby. And that affects, that affects things in the Levitical Code. Thankfully, we're not under the Levitical Code because of Jesus you women get to come to church all four weeks of the month, unlike your sisters in Christ in the Old Testament. So that's a wonderful thing, but it's good for us to understand the distinction, isn't it? It's important. So, so here we have Mary. She is dealing with this issue. She needs this purification for the flow of blood, and she brings it. So that no one later could say, well, when you were dedicated, it was an unrighteous dedication because of impurity. So, so here in Luke 2, these, these verses that we just skip right over, don't we? Because we think, well, we have the, the birth text. And there go the shepherds on their way. And then we get Simeon and Anna. And we just jump right over these other thoughts. But Luke isn't giving us any needless thoughts in his gospel. Everything is to make us certain about Christ and his gospel. And here, even in his infancy, he keeps the law. In fact, verse 39, when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, He wants us certain of that. They kept every detail of the law as it related to Christ. Joseph and Mary were sinners like the rest of us. But when it came to keeping God's standard for Christ's upbringing uh, through dedication, circumcision, and the ceremonial law, they kept it all. Well, Verse 40 then transitions, we could say, to his youth, because then we start, uh, we, we start thinking about him kind of going into his toddler days. Jesus grew and became strong in spirit. He continued in a perfect and continual keeping of God's law. When we read that he was filled with wisdom, that's not earthly wisdom only, that he was just smart. It's biblical wisdom. The fear, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
And that's what we're being told about Christ from his earliest days as a a tottering little boy, stumbling, trying to walk for the first time. Already, he is walking in the fear of the Lord and in wisdom. And that then uh, affects how he's viewed by God. God is with him. And in verse 52, he not only has God's favor, but he's also walking in wisdom in such a way that he gets his neighbor's favor because he's keeping the law of God towards God and in love towards neighbor as well. And this includes then as a teenager, verses 42 through 52, as we'll get to in a few weeks, we have his one, in, one story of his teenage years as he uh, uh, experiences what we would think of as the, the bar mitzvah, becoming a man, teenage boy. And surely that's when we're going to see sin, right? A teenager. And even there, we see him keeping righteousness. We'll come back to that in a few weeks. Luke will continue with that. Throughout all of Luke, you ought to be asking, can I be certain that Christ continued to keep the law all 33 years? The answer Luke gives will be yes, but look for that scattered throughout. We have Christ in the wilderness refusing sin, although he endured far harsher conditions than Adam in the garden. Adam surrounded by beautiful fruit trees much food, no wild animals. Christ in the wilderness surrounded by wild animals without food for 40 days and 40 nights. And yet he keeps God's word. Indeed, right before that, he goes for his baptism. And in Matthew chapter 3, We're told why he goes for his baptism. Did he need baptism? Think of the two things baptism represents. Similar to this circumcision. Baptism represents the purification, the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Does he need to be washed? No. He's never broken God's law. The other thing it represents is visible inclusion into the people of God, into the church. And does he need that? He's the head of the church. He's the one who builds the church. He's the king of the church. He doesn't need to be put into the church. He's over the church. And yet he receives baptism. John says in Matthew 3, he says, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? But Jesus answered, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Christ will not fail in one law, not one, for us and for our salvation. So even unto death, he keeps the law. In the garden, he prays to the Father Thy will be done. And on the cross, he declares, it is finished. 
what was finished. Well, on the one hand, what was finished was his paying the penalty for our sin. He paid, having drained the cup of God's wrath to the very bottom, not leaving any dregs. He paid the debt of hell for those who believe on him. But there's something else that's finished. As he gives up his soul in death, it's a complete human life with perfect law keeping finished for us and for our salvation. We should give great thanks for the active obedience of Christ, his law keeping. There, there are some implications. Let me just conclude briefly with a, a few encouragements for us from realizing that Christ absolutely, certainly kept God's law, even the parts of God's law that you and I find a little strange in the Old Testament or seem superficial. He kept it all. And that has wonderful, wonderful implications. One We cannot lose our salvation. Because our salvation is based not simply on the forgiveness of sins, but on God accepting us as if we had always done everything right, which you and I haven't. But if God accepts us as perfectly righteous because Christ was perfectly righteous and he represents you and I, then we can't lose our salvation. Unless it would be that Christ would sin. And we know that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has never sinned. He will never sin. And if your salvation is based not on your merit, but on his righteousness, then you can't lose your salvation before God. Another implication, and these all overlap, I'm just trying to make sure we get the point. But another implication of Christ's righteousness for us is we don't need to be despairing when we look at our own progress. New Year's Day. How, how holy were you one year ago today? How much sin did you think back then? Lord, I, I don't want to keep doing this sin. And how many of those things are you still struggling with today? Maybe you even had a month or two where you were thinking, yes, I'm past it. And then you fell right back into it. And if our salvation was based on our progress, then absolutely we would need to despair. But since it's not, we don't need to despair. Now that's different than saying, don't care. Despairing and and caring are two very different things, but we don't need to despair. If you think about that, you can't lose your salvation. And and since it's not based on your merit, you, you don't need to despair. Then that should lead us to assurance, shouldn't it? 
joyful confidence in the Christian life. If Jesus is mine and I am his, then you are righteous. I am righteous before the throne of God above. And this will not change. And then finally, and again, these are all overlapping, aren't they? But another implication is that we can fight sin with certainty. We can fight sin with certainty, not in our own efforts. How often have you given up on something in the Christian life because you tried and you tried and you tried? And eventually you became fairly certain that you're never going to defeat this. You're never going to win this battle. But again, if it's not based on your efforts, but on a victory that is already won, it is finished, says Christ. And then he rose again from the dead. And he declared to John, I am He who holds the keys of death and Hades. I'm the victor, he's saying. Then you can approach every battle in Christ, knowing that whatever the outcome of the battle, victory is assured. And what a confident thing that gives, doesn't it? I'm going to fight this battle. I may... Walk away bruised and battered. But I will not die here. I will not find myself eternally lost here. This battlefield isn't the end. Because in Christ, my life is hidden above with God. Colossians 3, 1 through 3. What sweeter motivation could we have for pursuing the Christian life than that? That the victory is already won. And that the victory isn't dependent on your actions, but on the actions of Christ. What what wonderful motivation when we reflect with Luke that through all his wondrous childhood, he honored and obeyed. And that didn't stop there. As the New Testament declares, by this man's obedience... Many, that is all who are in him by faith, will be made righteous. Even so, grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thanks be to God.